I invite you to bow your hearts with me and let's go to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for this time in your word. We are thankful to you for an opportunity that you've given to us to study this book verse by verse. And we thank you for Apostle Paul, who under the inspiration of Holy Spirit has put these words down on these pages. We thank you for Christ, for an amazing display of his glory in these first two chapters. And I do pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes this morning, that we may once again see Christ, that we, we may once again see his glory and his sufficiency for us, that we would recognize that he is God himself, and in him all that we need for our salvation and for our walk in Christ we have in him. I do pray for myself that you would give me grace to take us through these verses. Pray for clarity, for understanding, and I pray that the hearts of your people would be encouraged. I pray for any who would listen to this who still are not uh, in a relationship with Christ, in a loving relationship, in submission to Christ. I pray that perhaps this morning you would be willing by your grace to open their hearts to receive the gospel and to believe in Christ. Bless us as your people. We submit to you in this moment. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, I invite you to take your copies of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 2. This morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Your Fullness in Christ's Fullness. William Rendell Hurst, who died in 1951, was a wealthy businessman and a newspaper publisher. From an early age, he had an insatiable desire for antiquities. At the age of 20, he acquired a five-story warehouse in Bronx where he stored all his holdings. Perhaps some of you have visited Hearst Castle, and you have walked through each room and saw many different uh, artworks, many different statues, and various treasures from all over the world. Now, it's not too far from where we live, so maybe some of you have been there and walked through that as I have. Now, on one occasion, he heard of some artwork that he was determined to obtain. So he sent his agents all over the world so that they can hunt it down and buy it for him. They left, and a few months later, they returned and brought a good news that they were able to finally locate that piece. They had even better news for him, that it's not going to cost them a dime. They found it in one of his warehouses. All along, he was the owner of the treasure that he has been searching for. Now, we come to this passage of Scripture, and in these verses, Paul wants to remind Colossians, and he wants to remind each one of us that we are owners of the greatest treasure there is. And that we no longer have to look for anyone else or anything else. As I said, we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2. Up until this point, Paul has been exalting the glories of Christ. He laid out his case that Jesus Christ is God himself, who sovereignly rules over the physical realm and over the spiritual realm. He's not just a king who sits somewhere above the universe and who governs all that from way out there. No, Paul said that he is God who indwells each believer. This is the mystery of the New Testament. 
Mystery that Christ himself indwells you. This was the message that Paul preached. This was the message that Colossians received. And although Paul has not seen them personally, he struggles so that believers in Colossae and all of us would be encouraged in Christ. He preached Christ to them so that they would realize who he is and so that they would understand all the riches that they have in him. Paul desired that they would continue to grow in Christ so that their knowledge of Christ would continue to increase. See, Christ is the reservoir of the wisdom and knowledge. He said in chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is your ability to apply to life the knowledge that you have. Now, the reason why Paul is so focused on this in these first few chapters is because they were some who were trying to take their attention from Christ. They brought persuasive arguments, as we saw last time. They said that Jesus is good, but Jesus is not good enough. They offered some superior knowledge. They claimed that they had certain visions and revelations from angels. They sought to dissuade Colossians from following Christ and trusting in Christ completely. Now, in order for you to buy into their false teaching, you had to believe that you were lacking something. And you had to believe that what they were offering to you is going to help you with the area where you're lacking. They had to convince you that you wanted that artwork and that you didn't yet have it. And that's what they were doing. And Paul, in this passage, he is warning Colossians not to fall for the heresy that is being promoted there. Paul is going to tell them in this passage that, listen, you already have all the treasures. Everything that you need, you already have in Christ. Now, I want to take a moment here and to clarify what we're talking about. Paul is talking about an attack on Christ. And when you attack Christ, you attack the gospel. The question that Paul is dealing with in this chapter is, how do you attain relationship with Christ? And how do you maintain that relationship with Christ? To say it another way, what is necessary for salvation and sanctification? That's why we can say that this passage is relevant for us today. There are people today who get on TV and they say that they had special revelation. The Lord said this or the Lord said that. There are others who will tell you that you need to follow certain traditions, certain rituals in order for you to be accepted by God. Some may claim that, listen, our fathers died for this and you're going to tell me they were wrong? Now, when it comes to your standing before God, the question in this passage is, do you need anything else besides Jesus? And the emphatic answer Paul gives in these verses is no. As we unpack verses 12, 8 through 12, we will see that Paul will give one warning to Colossians. And the warning is this, do not be deceived by philosophy. And then in verses 9 through 12, Paul will give two reasons why you should not be deceived. Reason number one is because all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Listen, if you have Christ, you already have the connection to the divine. You already have connection to God because God himself dwells in you. And reason number two is that if you are in Christ, you already have all the completeness. You possess all the fullness in Christ. You already have all that you need for life 
in godliness. This world and the religions of this world, they have nothing to offer to you. In fact, if you believe in Jesus who dwells in you, you believe that God himself resides in you and he's able to equip you for life of godliness. If we summarize everything that Paul will say in these verses and we'll put it in one sentence, it would go like this. Since Christ has all the fullness and in Christ we have all the fullness, we need no one else and nothing else for salvation and sanctification. Let me say that again. Since Christ has all the fullness and in Christ we have all the fullness, we need no one else and nothing else for salvation and sanctification. Join me as I begin reading in Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verses 6 through 15. Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's begin by looking at our passage and looking at the warning we have in verse 8. Paul begins in verse 8 and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now such warning is not unique to this book or to Paul. Virtually Jesus and every author of the New Testament letters has his own form of this warning. To be on the lookout for those who will try to deceive you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Matthew 16, 6, speaking to his disciples, he says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul had a similar warning for the, eld for the elders from the church of Ephesus, where in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Writing his letter to the churches in Galatia, 
Paul said in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. There will be people who will try to put you in subjection once again, but you have been set free. Peter echoed the words of Paul. In 2 Peter 3, 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled man and fall from your steadfastness. Writing just a bit later, Jude said that this has already happened in the church where he said, beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Why? For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were before, long before and marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle John, writing the final letters of the New Testament. In 2 John 10 said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring you this teaching concerning Christ. He says, do not receive him in your house. And do not give him a greeting. So we see that the overall context of scripture in the context of Colossians, of the book of Colossians, we see that there is always this concern that someone is going to come and try to dissuade you from following Christ and try to deceive you. This verse here, verse 8 of chapter 2, is a call to vigilance. There was imminent danger to believers in Colossae. And because Paul, as their pastor, is concerned for them, he is writing this for them and for us. Notice he said, see to it that no one takes you captive. This word takes you captive can be translated as carry you off as booty, to kidnap you, to exploit you, to make prey of you. The picture here is that there is the spiritual war and, some, and your enemy is coming in order to take you away, to carry you away. Now, the means by which you could be carried away, Paul says, take you captive through philosophy. Philosophy. Philosophy simply means love of wisdom. The only time it appears in this text and in Paul's day when he was writing this, philosophy referred to any system of thought that people believed in or or trusted. Now, both pagans and Jews who lived in Greek cities, they refer to their systems of thought as philosophies. Josephus, for example, a Jewish historian, he used the same, uh, same word to describe the political parties in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The aim of philosophy was to answer the fundamental questions of life. But apart from Christ, Paul says, such answers could not be found. Someone said, well, that philosophy has been a quest, but never a conquest. Now, there, he, Paul here, he's aiming at a particular philosophy that was attacking the church in Colossae. As we've seen in the first couple verses of this chapter, Paul says that this was a sophisticated system. They had persuasive arguments. This philosophy contained elements of Jewish tradition and legalism, as well as pagan mysticism and asceticism, as we'll see in the remainder of the chapter. These philosophers, they came in and they said that they had mystical experience that gave them superior knowledge that they were willing to share with some people in the church. They denied the deity and the sufficiency of Christ. They denied the humanity of Christ, as we'll see in our text. 
Now, no doubt that their arguments sound very plausible and very persuasive to common men. Now, you've heard of philosophical arguments. You've heard of philosophy, and we even use it in the same way today. Someone said philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand and make you think it's your fault. Or on the other hand, philosophy is saying what everybody knows in the language that no one can understand. Or to say it another way, philosopher is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black hat that is not there. No wonder Paul says that philosophy equals empty deception. Now here he says, through philosophy and empty deception. Now there's only one preposition there. There's only one article there. So we can say that both of these terms refer to the same thing. Paul says, no one takes you captive through philosophy, which is empty deception. It has no substance. Maybe you visited Hollywood studio and you saw all those facades of the buildings that are built for the movies. Now, all there is is just facade, but there is no building. And that's what Paul is saying here. All they have is facade, but there is no substance to it. There is nothing behind it. So the means by which they deceive you is to point in you, by pointing you to those beautiful facades Paul calls philosophy. Now, notice he says that this philosophy has two sources. Two sources. Number one, he says this philosophy, which is empty deception, is according to the traditions of man. That's number one. According to traditions of man. Now this philosophy, this system of thought, is not based on divine revelation, but rather it is based on human traditions. Now traditions here refer to something that has been passed down from generation to generations. And that's what philosophers do. They take something that someone said before and they either refute it or they refine it. And he says it's been passed down from generation to generation and it does not originate with God, but it, it originates with man. Now the word traditions, it could be good or it could be bad. For example, the word tradition is used in a good sense. St. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. And he said, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of, or word of mouth or by the letters from us. So the tradition was this oral teaching that apostles came and they communicated to the church. In chapter 3 of the same letter, he says in verse 6, now we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So tradition could be, could, could be used in a good sense. Now, it could also be used in a negative sense. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark writes in chapter 7, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thus observing the traditions of the elders. And you remember that in that chapter, Jesus condemns them. And he says in verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of man. In this case, obviously traditions were negative because they were opposed to the word of God. Now the traditions that Paul has in mind here are obviously bad because he explicitly says that these traditions are not according to Christ. So the first source of this philosophy is these, are these human traditions, man-made rather than God. Second, it's not only man-made, it is according to the elementary principles of the world. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult phrase to make sense of. And even depending on the translation you have, you see, that th you see this difficulty. 
if you have NASB, it says, according to the elementary principles of the world. If you have ESV, ESV says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. If you were to read this entire verse in NLT, listen to this. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Great description. That come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than according to Christ. Human thinking and from the spiritual powers of the world rather than from Christ. Now, Paul will again use this term in verse 20, where he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world. Now, the basic meaning of that word, it can refer to anything in a row or a series. For example, it referred to the letters of the alphabet. Now, three suggestions have been offered to make sense of this. Number one, that when Paul says here, the elementary principles or the spirits, it refers to material elements which compose the physical world, according to the material elements which compose the physical world. And obviously, because of the context here, Paul is not talking about that. So since there's nothing in this context to support this, this is not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about, you know, oxygen or anything else here. The second option that we have here is the elementary teachings of the world. And this is the option that Nasby went with. This is an option here. In other words, Paul is saying what the false teachers are promoting is not rocket science, but it's, it's child's gibberish. It's just elementary teachings, the ABCs of this world. MacArthur says to abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after earning a doctorate. So this is not a sophisticated system. It's not something way up there. It's not something that, you know, an angel told him about. He says it is just the basic teaching of the world. That's another option that you can take. Or there's a third option. That Paul is referring here to the elementary spirits of the world. This is the option that ESV and NLT translators went with. Paul is saying that this philosophy... It has its source, not only in human thinking, but also devil and his spirits are behind this teaching. Now just consider how many times already in this letter, Paul referred to devil and to the evil spirits. In chapter 1, verse 16, when he talked about Jesus being the creator, he says that by him all things were created, both thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All of these are ranks of angels. In chapter 2, verse 10, as we'll see in a minute, Paul again refers to Jesus, who is the head over all rule and authority. Again, another reference to angels and demons. In chapter 2, verse 15, which we just read, again, he's talking about evil spirits here. He says, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Furthermore, to support this position, we also know that behind every false teaching, is the devil. Devil and his spirits are behind every false doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So Paul is warning Colossians, do not fall for this deceptive uh, philosophy which originates with man and which originates with the devil. Devil and man, 
are not in business of bringing people to God. That's not what they do. Therefore, to fall for their schemes is to be carried away as the spoil of war. Not only does Paul give this warning, he says, let me tell you, this is where their thinking is. This is what they're promoting. This is the source of what they're teaching. But let me tell you why you should not be deceived. Let me tell you why you should not fall for what they are offering to you. And he gives two reasons. Two reasons. Reason number one, you should not be deceived because number one, in Christ dwells all the fullness. Look at verse nine. He says, for in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily form. And notice that the verse begins with for or because. Paul provides the reason for the warning he just gave in verse 8. Now, at first glance, as you read verse 9, it seems like there's hardly a connection between verse 8 and verse 9. Now, we often use this verse in order to prove the deity of Christ. And certainly this text does prove deity and humanity of Christ. But the question we ask for ourselves in this passage is, how does Christ's deity support what Paul is arguing in this context. You see, what happened was philosophers came into the church, these false teachers came into the church, and they said, you want to have connection to God? I can bring you to God. You need to do this, that, or the other. And that way, you will have communion with God. And that way, you will be pleasing to God. And Paul says that if you have Christ, you already have communion with God because God himself dwells in you. In Christ who dwells in you, you already have connection to God. Imagine this. Imagine that you have a direct line to the president of the United States. You can pick up your phone and you can call him any time of the day or night. And then someone comes to you and says, can you imagine I can connect you with the president of the United States. You know, I have a friend whose sister works for a guy who went to school with a lady whose son married a woman who is related to the former bodyguard of the president of the United States. Now he still has a connection to his former boss and he can call his former boss because his wife is a friend of the president's secretary and she can talk to her and the president's secretary can connect you to the president. What would you say? You're crazy. I can just pick up my phone and I can call the president. Well, this is what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that you have a direct line to God. You have a direct connection with Jesus and God himself dwells in you. And you have these people who are offering, you need to do this person, you need to go through this and then you need to do that and then you can connect to that and then maybe then, Paul says, you don't need any of that stuff. Why? Because God himself dwells in you. And notice in this verse, Paul asserts the full deity of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, look at it. He says, for in Christ, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Paul has already referred to the fullness of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. 
Paul refers to the divine essence and nature. He says, total fullness of God. Godhead resides in Christ himself permanently. And notice that Christ is not a distinct deity. He's not distinct from the Father. He is a distinct person from the Father. But he says the fullness of God resides in him. Jesus Christ shares the same essence, the same nature, the same attributes as the Father himself. Jesus Christ is not less than God. This verse does not say that Christ has some of the nature and some of the attributes of God. Both the Father, the Son, and we can add the Holy Spirit, they share or they have the same essence and they have the same nature. Now, Colossian heresy denied the deity of Christ and also denied the humanity of Christ. And we've seen that even up to this point, Paul has talked so many times already about deity of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God. And we looked at that passage earlier. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, he is the creator who spoke all things into existence. In verse 17, he says, he is the sustainer who holds all things in his hand. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says that Jesus himself is the source of all wisdom and source of all knowledge. In our verse here, he says, Jesus Christ possesses all the fullness of God. Jesus Christ is fully God. But not only that, he says Jesus Christ is also fully man. Because he says all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Not only was Jesus fully God, but Jesus was also fully man. Now, he already spoke about that in his book. There were already many references to the humanity of Jesus. Why? Because his false teachers also denied that Jesus was a man. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, to die, you have to be 100% man. Jesus died, was buried, and three days later, he rose again. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he said he made peace through the blood of his cross. God is spirit. He does not have flesh. He does not have blood. But here he says that you were reconciled through the blood of his cross. In verse 22, he elaborates and he said that he, Jesus, reconciled you in his fleshly body. Jesus did not appear as a man. Jesus was a man. And in our text here, he says that all the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily form. You see, if you don't believe in the full deity of Christ, if you don't believe in the full humanity of Christ, you don't believe in Jesus of the Bible. And if you don't believe in Jesus of the Bible, you are not saved because this is the only Jesus who is God-man, who stands as a mediator between God and man. The reason number one, why you don't need to fall for the philosophies is because you already have connection with God because God himself dwells in you. All the fullness of God is in Christ and this Christ now dwells in you. Now, the second reason why you don't need to fall for these philosophies is because number two in Christ, you have all the fullness. You already have everything that you need. Now it's essential here to see the connection that Paul makes between the fullness of God and our fullness. Because in the verse here, verse nine, he says, all the fullness dwells in the bodily form. And then it's the same word when he says in you, in him, you have been made 
full. You have been made complete. Now, this is not saying that now the fullness of God dwells in you, that you are God now. But this concept that we receive of Christ's fullness is taught everywhere in the New Testament. For example, in the Gospel of John, verse 16, it says, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that you may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Connection back to chapter 2, verse 3. Further, in Ephesians 4, 13, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Notice he says here, in him, that is in Christ, you have been made complete. Past tense. As a result of your union with Christ, believers in Colossae, and all of us, we have all that we need for our standing before God. Now, the question we might ask is, in what sense are believers complete in Christ? Because he says here, in him you have been made complete. And the reason why we so often fall for these offers is because we don't feel complete. It's because we feel like we lack something. And perhaps not few because we lack something. So when Paul says that in Christ you have been made complete, we have to understand in what sense are believers complete in Christ? Well, first of all, in terms of your positional righteousness, you are absolutely complete in Christ. Why? Because the moment you believe the gospel, the moment you confess your sin, the moment you acknowledge that you cannot earn it on your own, and you come to God and you repent of your sins, God takes away your sins, and he imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, from that point on, God always looks at you through the righteousness of Christ. He looks at you, and you cannot be more complete than you are the moment you believe. You see, on your worst day in life, you are still complete in Christ. Because it's not about your performance. Your standing before God has nothing to do with your performance. Your standing before God has everything to do with Christ's performance. And because you no longer trust in yourself and in your performance, you put your faith in the performance of Christ, and therefore God always looks at you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't add to it, and you can't take away from it. You cannot be more complete than you are now already, positionally. But in practice, in practice, you also have all that you need for your life and godliness. That's why I said we don't need anything else and we don't need anyone else for our salvation and our sanctification. For you to be saved, all you need to do is believe in Christ. And for you to be sanctified, all you need is Christ. You don't need the mediating work of angels, as was offered here. Because even in our verse here, notice what he says in verse 10. That Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. So if you have some guys who says, listen, there's this angel that can get you closer to God. Paul is saying here, Jesus is the head of the angels. And this Jesus dwells in you. This Jesus now is God who is in you. Why would you subject yourself to some subject when you have the head dwelling in you? Jesus is superior to all. He is head over all rule and over all authority, which is another reference to angels. 
If you have direct access to the head, why would you settle for the mere subject? And while you are positionally perfect, in practice you're not. And in your practice, and Paul knew that, and that's why he said in chapter 1, verse 28, that we continue to proclaim Christ. Our ministry is to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. In your sanctification, as you're becoming more like Christ, which will culminate with your glorification, Paul says that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming Christ so that our position So our practice would one day match with our position. Now in verse 11 and 12, Paul further describes for us these two realities. You have been made complete. And he looks at two things here. He talks about circumcision and he talks about baptism. He describes your completeness in terms of these two realities. First, in verse 11, he states that you have been circumcised. Look at verse 11. And in him, you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we said earlier that most of the believers in the church of Colossae were Gentiles, not Jews. Now, physical circumcision was a sign of Abrahamic covenant. God commanded Israelites to circumcise every male child on the eighth day. Now, this was a ceremony that was meant to point to a greater reality, even in the Old Testament. The removal of the foreskin was a physical picture of something that is much deeper than that. By the time you come to the New Testament, Jews took pride in the ceremony and they abandoned the substance of the ceremony. They divided the entire world into two groups, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And even in this letter, look at chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, a removal in which there is no distinction. When you come into the body of Christ, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. They looked down at people because they were uncircumcised. But as I said, that even in the Old Testament, God was concerned for the hearts. We read passages like in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, He says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. Because the false teachers came into this church and they brought this Jewish element with them, they were most likely telling believers in Colossae that yes, you are in Christ and that's great, that's awesome. You need to get circumcised. And Paul says in this chapter, or Paul says in this verse, that you can check the box already. Even though you're a Gentile, you were not physically circumcised. He says, you have already been circumcised. 
already been circumcised. Not with physical circumcision. Because he says it was made without sense. Notice it's past tense. You were circumcised. And you were circumcised at the moment of your conversion. Now Paul here is taking Colossians back to the moment when they believed the gospel. To the moment when they were regenerated. To the moment when they were saved. And he says the circumcision, it was done without hands. No, you did not have a surgery it was done without hands. The circumcision did not just remove a portion of your physical flesh. Notice he says it, was, it removed the entire body of the flesh. Now again, this is not a reference to a physical body here, but rather to the sinful, unregenerate nature which dominated believers before their conversion. He says when you were saved, when you believed the gospel, you were born again. And when you were born again, God has already removed the body of the flesh from you. He has removed your old, unregenerate, sinful old man. The circumcision, notice, it was accomplished by Christ, who made you alive when you were dead. Now, if Christ has already removed the body of flesh from you, as he says in this text, do you still need someone to come along and do it for you? Of course not. Paul says, you have already been complete. Now, physical circumcision, even in the Old Testament, was never meant to make anyone acceptable to God. It always pointed to the greater reality. Your circumcision, your regeneration, and your regeneration where your old self died, and you were raised up and made new. He says, what Christ has done for you cannot be accomplished by any other means. And whatever it is that the world and the devil are offering to you, they have no power to do it. And you don't need it done because that already happened at your salvation. But not only does he say you were circumcised, he says in verse 12, you were baptized. Look at verse 12. He says, having been baptized, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, just as in verse 11, Paul was not speaking of physical circumcision. In verse 12, he is not talking about physical baptism. Both of these, both circumcision and baptism, refer to spiritual realities. Now, just as a side note here, this is where paedo-baptists go to find a connection between circumcision and baptism. They say that just as in the Old Testament, children were circumcised. In the New Testament, baptism, it supersedes or replaces Old Testament circumcision. And that's why we baptize babies. But notice there is no reference here to water baptism anywhere in this text. And nowhere does Bible teach that baptism replaces circumcision. Now we can say that verse 12 further explains what it means to be circumcised. What it means to be regenerated. He says, when you got saved, you were identified with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection. In Romans 6, which we read at the beginning of the service, Paul explains further and he elaborates on this baptism that took place when you got saved. Paul will talk about it again in chapter 3, verse 1. But I just want to go back to Romans chapter 6 and I'll read a couple of verses here and make a few notes. Notice Paul argues in Romans chapter 6 that now you live a different life because of what happened at the moment of your conversion. Hence, he asked this question in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He preached the gospel in such a way that people said, well, listen, does that mean now I can do whatever I want? Because salvation is free. It's by grace. It has nothing to do with your works. And Paul says, may it never be. 
And those, the reason why he says you don't continue to sin, listen to his explanation. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul is not speaking here of water baptism because not everyone who goes through water baptism is placed into Christ. But in this passage, Paul says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, it is regeneration that takes an unbeliever and places him into the body of Christ. You can be baptized with water baptism when you are unregenerated. And if you've been baptized, you just took an extra bath. Water baptism is merely an external sign of an internal reality. And Paul says here that in Christ Jesus, when you were saved, you were baptized into Christ. You were identified with Christ. You were buried and you rose again. When Christ died on the cross, he was buried. He was placed in the tomb. And he was there for portions of three days to demonstrate that he actually died. And on the third day, he rose again. Now, as believers, he says, we were identified with Christ because Christ is our substitute. And because Christ died on our behalf and because Christ rose on our behalf, you died and you rose with Christ. Now, this doesn't take place at your water baptism, but this takes place when you are regenerated. How do I know that? Because the verse says, how did this happen? It happened through faith in the working of God. When you place your faith in Christ, when you place your faith in the work of Christ, then the work that he has accomplished is credited to your account. And through your faith, you partake of the reality that we as believers have in Christ. He says it was through faith in the working of God. That's why in Romans 10 verse 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. Notice he says, you have to place your faith in the work of Christ, that he died on your behalf and that he rose again. That's what Colossians believe when they were saved. Water baptism just illustrates that. As you go underwater, you demonstrate that you have died to your former self. You have died to your former life. And as you arise from the water, it demonstrates that now you are born again to a new life. And if you have died with Christ, if you have been buried with him, and if you rose again, now you can live new life. The verse Vic read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has been baptized into Christ, he says he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Since you have died with Christ and rose again, you are now positionally complete in Christ. Not only that, your life now is different than it was before your conversion. Why? Because you have been changed. Because your nature has been changed. You don't need to fall for the false teaching and that are being offered to you. Why? Because you already have all that you need in Christ. You are a new man with new abilities to live a new life. Why? Because Christ now lives in you. Christ himself now lives in you. And now you have all that you need for life and godliness. So why should you not be deceived? Because Christ is God and God dwells in you. And in Christ, you have connection with God. And because Christ is in you, 
And Christ has all the fullness. He grants you all that fullness. And everything that you need to be saved and to be sanctified, you already have because of the work of Christ. As we close, ask a simple question. So what? So what? What does all this have to do with your Monday morning? But notice how hard Paul is laboring to explain to us what God has done for us in Christ. I mean, just let these truths sink deep into your heart. Meditate at them. Think about them. That Jesus Christ is fully God. And yet he lived among men as a man. All the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. And the same Jesus now dwells in you. Now, Because of his work, you are now complete in Christ. You have all that you need. You don't need to settle for cheap substitutes and for the fake offers of the world's religions. All you need is Christ. Imagine that you have a relative, a rich relative that you didn't know about. And he calls you one day and he says, I want to give you a castle in Italy. Castle has 56 rooms, fully furnished. Has four kitchens, fully equipped. 13 bathrooms in case you get lost. And so you pack all your stuff and you move to Italy. You settle into your new house, and at first, it's really difficult to find anything in the house. And you begin to complain because in your 800-square-foot apartment, you had everything there, and you knew where everything is. You see, the problem is not that you don't have everything in that castle. The problem is that you don't know your castle. The problem is you don't know where what is in that castle. You see, it's sometimes we as Christians, we live in our 800-square-foot apartment, and we don't realize that we have a castle. That in Christ, we have all that we need. We have all the riches and we have countless blessings in Christ. And that's why Paul is laboring so hard so that you would understand everything you have in Christ. So that you would understand the riches that he has offered to you. You see, in Christ, you're not lacking anything for your standing before God and for your sanctification. But your knowledge of Christ and your love for him needs to continue to increase. Now, these verses help us understand who we are in Christ. We meditate on this, and we just stop, and we just praise God. Praise God that he has given us so many riches in Christ. There are countless implications of this passage. I mean, if this is true, we no longer work to be accepted by God. If this is true, we can draw near boldly to the throne of grace because we are accepted in God. This is true, we don't have to jump on the latest fad that is being offered, even in the church. Since we are complete in Christ, we can live lives that are pleasing to God. Since we are complete in Christ, we can trust that the Lord will bring us to glory and one day our practice will match with our position. Why? Because Christ dwells in us. Praise God for an amazing gospel. Praise God for amazing riches that he gives to us. And as we meditate on these things, may our heart overflow with gratitude to God for all he's done for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you dwell in us and that in you we have all that we need. I pray that our knowledge of you would continue to increase and that we would understand that all we need is you. We thank you for your amazing gospel and your amazing work. In Jesus' name, amen.